We have now arrived at the fifth chapter of the book of Luke. So if you'll turn there with me and we'll read the first three verses and consider them today. Follow along with me as I read these verses, beginning in verse 1. So it was as the multitude pressed against him, this is the Lord Jesus, to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now that's the lake of Galilee. It's just an inlet off the lake of Galilee. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God as he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. These scriptures speak about a strange and mysterious attraction that takes place within people's souls. It's a special desire within their spirit that causes them to want to draw nearer and to know more about both the Word of God, but also to know about this person of the Lord Jesus and about His teachings. And that was what was taking place that day. As with those people then, it's said here that they were pressing to get near to Jesus. They were pressing right up against Him. And that was the attraction that came into their hearts mysteriously from the Holy Spirit. And that attraction, folks, becomes almost irresistible. So much so that people will go to extraordinary circumstances to get up near to the Lord Jesus and to hear His words. Zacchaeus, if you recall, a tax collector, he had climbed a tree just to get a clearer look at the Lord Jesus. And in our day... We hear people telling stories about, and while they didn't really know exactly why they were doing it, but they would travel long distances to hear Billy Graham, hear him tell about Jesus and about salvation. And Jesus explained that mysterious experience of being drawn to him in John chapter 6. And I'd like to read those words for you. They're in chapter 6 of John, verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Simple words. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise Him up on that last day. Marvelous words. And then also in verse 44 of that same chapter 6, we read, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Think about those words. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then also, verse 65 of John chapter 6, we read, This is why, this is the Lord Jesus saying, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. The understanding, folks, from these 
simple scripture verses is this, that there will come a time within each person's soul that they will be drawn to the Lord Jesus and given the opportunity to truly know Him. Consider that simple truth for a moment. It's a profound expression of love from God. It's beyond measure. A profound expression of love. The very God who created the heavens and the earth desires to have a loving and eternal relationship with you and with me. And he proves it by drawing us up close to himself so that we can get to know him. That is pure love in its most precious form. And folks, we dare not. We dare not turn away and deny him. And please note also in these words that when God uses this word draw, it is seldom ever used in these scriptures in a gentle sense of wooing or coaxing as so many would have us to understand. It's not a wooing, folks. It's not a coaxing. It is a forcible drawing, such as when a soldier draws his sword. It's used in that same way in these scriptures, as a soldier draws his sword from its sheath. Or when the fishermen drag their heavily laden nets into a boat. In those examples, neither the sword nor the nets added anything of their own effort or their own will into that circumstance. It only added resistance. And then Jesus tells us in verse 63 of John 6, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Isn't that clear? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And then again in verse 65 of John 6, those words that say that it needs be granted him by the Father. Anyone who comes to the Lord Jesus, it has to be granted him from the Father. That has this sense of where a king sitting on the throne, he is absolutely sovereign and he must give permission for anyone to enter into his presence. God must grant permission. Those words of the Lord Jesus again. again, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I'm reminded of the passage that speaks about that great and terrible day of judgment when many, having suddenly realized that they would not be allowed to enter into heaven, they'll cry out to God to let them in. They'll cry out to God to say, grant me the permission to enter in. But he'll say to them, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then this is the Lord Jesus. He says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Sadly, though, folks, this is where our doctrines sometimes differ with some of our brethren in other denominations. Those folks believe that each person is born with an innate sense of a need for a Savior. And because of that, and you'll hear that preached regularly in a lot of their churches, 
Because of that, each person can make a personal decision of their own. If they have this innate sense already, then they can make a personal decision on their own to come to Christ, to accept or reject Him as Savior, regardless of whether or not God draws them. That's nowhere in these scriptures. I've just quoted you the scriptures that are true. Now, while those folks may say that, yes, this special drawing does take place, they teach that that drawing from God is not completely necessary in order for them to be saved. They believe that, yes, God does offer them salvation, but it's entirely up to them as to whether or not they accept God's gracious offer. And now, yes, we in this church do believe that we really must participate in those choices. But listen, we believe that our willingness to make that right choice to receive Jesus as our Savior has also been given to us as a gift from God's precious Holy Spirit. Those are the exact words of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is a gift of God, that salvation and that faith. So then, our salvation is in every way dependent upon these precious words of Jesus here in John 6 that tell us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Folks, I'm convinced by these words of truth and others like them that none of us is able by our own free will to choose Christ. That we truly are born with a nature that is sinful from birth. We inherited it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And because of that sin nature that's born into us, we grow up and we live our lives in a condition of total depravity. Total depravity, unable on our own to even recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. This is the way that the Westminster Confession of Faith describes it. Listen, there we're told, man by his fall into a state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good is dead in sin. And he is not able by his own strength to convert himself or even to prepare himself for that conversion. And then Romans 3 verse 10 tells us there is none righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Pure scripture, folks. Scripture that we cannot deny. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one who seeks after me, he says. This is simple but very real truth. Yes, we can have some natural sense of right and wrong born into us. A sense of good and evil. But it's only in a secular or relative manner. And contrary to what many preach these days, there really is no good seed of faith. That's preached regularly, especially in our charismatic churches, that God has put this seed of faith, good seed of faith within us. Scripture does not say that. That was only thought up by some clever preacher. There really is no good seed of faith born into our souls that could prompt us and enable us of our own free will to choose Christ. You and I are instead born with a corrupt nature. 
were totally depraved, totally depraved and incapable on our own of even wanting to choose Christ to be our Savior. If you doubt those words, read Romans chapter 8. It's an excellent reference. It says, we don't do the things of the Spirit, neither can we. Remember the difference between can and may? May asks permission, but can is the ability. And there in Romans chapter 8, we're told we cannot do the things of the Spirit without Christ. These scriptures are clear. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And there you can read that all through the book of Ephesians. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And before our hearts, our souls, our minds can even think about turning from our sinful ways and to Christ, you and I must first be made alive, quickened by God's Holy Spirit. Folks, a person that is lying there in that coffin cannot respond one way or the other. They are dead. They must first be made alive before they can ever reach out their hand up and take hold of yours or especially take hold of Christ's hand. It tells us here in these words that we must be quickened by God's Holy Spirit, made alive. And it's then that that special drawing from God's Holy Spirit will compel our spirit to come to Jesus for His redeeming salvation. That was what was taking place on the beach there in Gennesaret. Those people were drawn there. God's Holy Spirit compelled their spirit to come to Jesus for His redeeming salvation. On this matter of being totally depraved, that's something that most people reject. I probably watch too much television, but in so many programs that I watch, and especially in today's culture, you will hear someone saying, but I'm a good person. I don't know why this is happening to me. I'm a good person. They're not. They're not. But folks just cannot imagine themselves, and especially their loved ones, as being totally depraved. And I confess that it really is a difficult thought, especially as we would observe our precious little children and grandchildren as they toddle about. It's hard to accept that they are already, at the core of their being, totally depraved. But folks, listen. It will not be a long time before that toddler's behaviors will begin to demonstrate their sinful condition. Why else do you have such expressions as the terrible twos? We begin to see that nature come forth within that little toddler. I certainly did not understand and accept that whole idea until the Lord drew me to Himself in salvation. I didn't even know that I was that wretched. Then one day, the Lord drew me to Himself in salvation. And the Holy Spirit came to live within me. And He began then to convict me of my wretched ways. It was then that I began to really know my condition. And now as I look back on those days before I was saved, I can clearly see what A.W. Tozer calls the self-life. Think about this, the self-life. It's a hopeless condition of selfishness, self-awareness, self-absorption, self-centeredness, and with an ego that seems always to put self first in every thought and consideration. That was me, folks, before I came to know the Lord. And may I say for you, that was you. 
I'm reminded of a song that I think I've spoken to you about that I listened to in some years back, Roy Clark. He sang this song. He said, yesterday when I was young, the taste of life was sweet upon my tongue. And every conversation that I can now recall concerned itself with me and nothing else at all. Such true words. Such true words. This self-life full of selfishness, nothing but selfishness and self-awareness and self-absorption and self-centeredness. And it's encouraged, by the way, in our culture to have all of these self-interests. And folks, though I am a long way even now from being having any form of righteousness, at least now, with God's Spirit, I know a lot more about my sins. And I am each day being convicted of them. Those words, by the way, are given to us in John chapter 16 where Jesus said, And when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, the Holy Spirit comes to live in our life, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Those words are true for each of us as we receive the Lord Jesus as our Savior. God's Holy Spirit comes to live and abide within our souls, and He is faithful to convict us of our sins. And not only the sins that we've already committed, but also of the sins that we're about to commit later on. That is a special and precious gift to us, folks. Think about it for a moment. We go from a condition of not even knowing that we're doing anything really wrong to a condition in which we are not only convicted that we have just committed a sin, but we're also warned about a sin that we are about to commit. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where he said, No temptation is overtaking you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can, what you are able. But with that temptation, listen, but with that temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You and I have no excuse for continuing on in a sin. The Lord Jesus will always give us a way of escape from it. Warn us first and then give us a way of escape. But again, those misguided folks who insist on believing that there is at least a little bit of good born within every person, they take a very different line of belief. They would argue that all these things are what the human conscience is for. And so they would argue about the conscience, that our conscience tells us when we've done something wrong or right. And there is some truth in that. There is some truth in, in that about our conscience. As a common grace, God did put a conscience within each person at their birth so that they would not be born completely and utterly without restraints and uncontrolled behavior. But folks, listen, that is not nearly enough to keep us from sinning. Just having our conscience warn us. I can recall before I came to know the Lord, my conscience would warn me ahead of time. But I went ahead and did it because I wanted to do those things more than I didn't want to. The problem with the human conscience is that it's, it often bases its beliefs and its standards not on real truth, but upon secular standards, secular beliefs personal beliefs about right and wrong. Personal beliefs like, well, what might be wrong for me 
might not be wrong for you and what might be right for you might not be right for me. The same thing is said about truth. What may be true for you may not be true for me. But folks, that's nowhere in these scriptures. And those are called situational ethics, personal ethics that have nothing to do with real right and wrong. And those kinds of humanistic standards are almost always flawed. As Christians, we believe of ourselves, no individual is capable of defining pure and unsullied truth. That you and I are not able to define pure and unsullied truth. That's what Eve wanted to do when she first rebelled and then Adam joined her in it. Real truth must come from a standard that's absolutely holy and righteous. And that kind of truth can only be found in and defined by the person of Christ alone. Jesus declared that to us in John chapter 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In those words, folks, Jesus did not just define truth by saying some wise sayings. That's not what he meant here. What he's saying here is he personally is the truth. Now that may be a hard saying for us to understand. But when we have him as our savior, we begin to grasp what he really means with those words. That he personally is the truth. And anything outside of him has some flaw in it. And then also note those last words of that verse where he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. It is only through the truth of the Lord Jesus that we can come to God the Father for salvation and for eternal life, that eternal life that we so desperately need. Jesus and his truth are the only way to eternal life. So then we arrive back at the question that we were considering a moment ago. Can a person who is totally depraved on their own and without any outside help, make a decision to turn their heart to the Lord Jesus and to receive Him as Savior. May I say that based on all of these scriptures, even especially the ones that I've just read to us, but many others within these scriptures, that the clear answer to that question is no. It really is not possible. We must be drawn by God's Spirit to make that decision. Again, those words, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Before we go on from these thoughts, I'm going to give one other additional thought to this matter of being totally depraved. Total depravity does not mean that we are absolutely depraved. They're two different words, and we should not confuse the meaning of those two words, total depravity and absolute depravity. We are obviously not the absolute worst that we could be. There are many other awful, despicable acts of violence and murder and corruption and perversity that you and I would not take part in. It's rather as one commentator described it. Let me read this for you. He tells us, Total depravity simply means that every part of our being is corrupted by sin. And specifically that our will, our human will, is bent in on itself. All of the, that self-life that A.W. Tozer spoke about is bent in on itself so that we will not seek God and we will not choose God in and of ourselves. We need God's effectual grace. Remember 
the first song that we sang this morning, that blessed grace. We need God's grace to be truly born again. And we need his powerful working to change our hearts and to change our minds so that then we will choose him. So again, we are not as absolutely bad as we could be, but still, of our own nature, we are totally depraved. And we're incapable of discerning true godliness. And that is why it is absolutely necessary that God draws us to the Lord Jesus for salvation. And that's also why you and I are here today in this church. You might have come here simply because this is what you do on Sunday. But there was something else taking place within your heart. We know that because these scriptures tell us. You and I were not only drawn to Christ for salvation in those first days. You and I are also drawn to Him, to learn of Him, and to know Him, and to worship Him. And that's why we're here today. Recall in those words that I read to us in an earlier message from Ezekiel chapter 36, there God said that He would put a new heart within you and me. And He would not only put a new heart within us, He would put a new spirit within us. And He would not only put a new spirit within us, He would put His spirit within our spirit. And His Spirit then would move us to do His will. That is what's taking place here today with you being in this church. And that was what was taking place that day with those people as they pressed up against the Lord Jesus so closely that He had to get into a boat to talk to them. The Holy Spirit moved them to be there. And the Holy Spirit moved us to be here today. How does He do that? The Holy Spirit gives us what Jesus calls a hungering and a thirsting for Him. Those words are in the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's a promise. You and I, as we hunger and thirst after righteousness, and then we feast upon the words and the provisions of God, His Spirit then causes us to hunger and thirst even more. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We hunger and thirst to know more about Him. And the more we know about Him, the more we hunger and thirst. That's a precious gift from God. But unfortunately, along with those generous provisions, I want to make sure that I give us a warning. We know from experience that you and I have a free will. And of our free will, we can do things that we should not do. We can, it can take us places that we should not go and cause us to do things that we should not do. By an act of our free will, we can reject that hungering and that thirsting that God puts within our souls. And we can actually turn away from Him. And we must understand that such temptations to turn away, they don't always come in some form of openly sinful behavior. More often, our turning away from Christ can be just the ordinary habits and the events of our day. But even so, our turning away is still turning away, whether it be from some sinful act or just sleeping in on Sunday morning. Just sleeping in on Sunday morning. Or mowing the grass. Or going fishing instead of coming to worship the Lord. We are still turning away. Folks, God desired us to allow Him to draw us to Christ. First, He'll do it with salvation. But then, even now, to draw us closer to Him. We must allow that. My plea for you and for me 
is that we would deliberately and intentionally begin to listen and to want to hear that still small voice of God as He draws us to Christ. Think about it. Is that not the most delightful place that you can imagine being? Why would we really want to be anywhere else but up close to the Lord Jesus? So then, this very day, this very moment, let's you and me agree with God and surrender our souls to that special drawing power of His Holy Spirit. Let's do as those people did in these scriptures and be drawn so near to Jesus that He doesn't even have room to stand. That's a nearness that uh, He wants us to take. It won't offend Him. It's exactly what He wants us to do. And that's why He tells us, Blessed are those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let's pray.